Mark chapter 13, and I'll read from verse 24 to verse 27. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. In the children's story, Dom's Dragon, uh, one, it tells a story of a little boy called Dom. Dom finds a small red egg and he decides to hide this egg under his bed. The next day, the egg hatches and out pops a little red dragon. She's a little bit hot and she glows. Dom calls her name Glow because, of course, she glows, right? And he decides to hide Glow under his bed. That night, we are told Dom has a nice warm bed. He sleeps very nicely, uh, thanks to the hot dragon under his bed. And as, ex and, and as we expect, as days pass, Glow starts to grow bigger, right? So Dom tries to hide it from his mom this time by hiding it under his, somewhere in the cabinet in the bathroom. Because it's grown bigger, so he can't keep it under the bed, so he, he finds a way of getting it somewhere in the bathroom. And of course, on that day, the, the, the dragon is there. It, it makes all the water nice and hot, and, uh, and Dom enjoys his having a warm towel to use. But glow keeps growing, right? So Dom says, so what am I going to do? He decides to move this dragon somewhere else in the kitchen. Somewhere else, he moves it in the kitchen. And we are told that the next day, this dragon is in the kitchen. Uh, all the food uh, is nice and warm. All the plates are nice to eat on. He's benefiting from this dragon. He keeps shifting around the house. But again, glow just keeps growing. And Dom keeps moving it around. So it is now too big to hide. So Dom is forced to come clean to, his, to tell his mom. He says to his mom, look, I've got a dragon. <laughs> what should I do about it? So the mom says, look. We have to tell the king about this dragon. So off they go. Dom's man, Dom and the dragon, they go to the king and they tell the king about this dragon. Now, initially when the king sees the dragon, he's very afraid. Uh, but then what Dom tells him, no, this, uh, this dragon is actually a friendly dragon. It makes everything nice and warm. So the king is impressed by this. So what does he do? He decides to put this dragon, in, to build a big house for this dragon. Because this dragon gets very, very hot, uh, it, it, the king puts, you know, water going through this house, and this, this dragon is able to pump out hot water throughout the town. And even, we guess, provide a bit of electricity. So everybody benefits from uh, having this dragon. And uh, at the end of the story, uh, the king hosts a party at the end where everybody's eating nice barbecue on nice warm plates, thanks to the hot dragon glow. And as we read that story, one of the lessons of Dom's Dragon, the book, is that I think the lesson is trying to teach us, first of all, is that it is better 
to be honest with our problems. Because the problem we might be facing in our lives may not be as bad as we think, right? By Dom admitting he had a dragon to his mom, in the end, what seemed like a problem he could not manage proved to be a blessing for everyone in the town. The authors of that story actually are trying to encourage our children not to fear sharing their problems. That's one of the lessons we draw from it. I say one of the lessons because, you see, there is a twist to the story at the end, if you read it, thanks to Ladybird, the, the ones who produced, that, who produced the book. There's a twist at the end, you see. As the town is enjoying having the dragon, we are taught, as the last sentence in the book, but one day, Dom saw three little eggs. And in the book, the expression on Dom's face says it all. He's shocked. He's, he's almost like horrified now. Because he now realizes that soon the town will not just have one dragon, it will have three dragons. Three dragons. Four, four now, I guess. And there's no telling what sort of dragons these are going to be. The town soon will have a big problem on his hand. And Dom, I guess, faces a very interesting question. Does he tell the king now about these three, uh, these three potential dragons? And, but as we read that, it's not just Dom who's shocked. Uh, I was shocked when I read it, and I think most people who are reading it will be shocked at the end, because that's not how we expect the story to end. We expect the story to end with, and they lived happily thereafter. All children books tend to end like that. All of them do. But the ending of that story stands out because it reveals something we know in life. The world we live in is broken. And our longing for a happily thereafter never comes, actually. There is no, in this broken world, a happily thereafter. So why then do we still long for a happily thereafter? Why do we enter relationships hoping they will end happily thereafter? Why do we have jobs hoping they will end with a happily thereafter? Well, the reason we have this longing, even though we know it's not there, uh, we know that there's no happily thereafter, the reason we have that hope for a happily thereafter is that there was a time when all human beings had a happily thereafter. We carry all of us within us this echo from Eden when God created us. The Bible says when God created us, he created us perfect in the Garden of Eden. We lived truly fulfilled lives of love and peace with God and one another. We lived a happily thereafter. But even the happily thereafter did not continue, did it? Because our first parents rebelled against God. And since then, all their descendants have been born emotionally, physically, and spiritually damaged. And we all sense this. We long to go back to the happily thereafter, but we can't. So we are now living in an endless quest to find, to define, to craft for ourselves our own happily thereafter. We are all longing for love and fulfillment. And the news of the Bible, the good news of the Bible, though, is that God is on a mission to restore our happily thereafter. You see, our happily thereafter is not something we can achieve by ourselves. It's only something that God can give us. And the news of the gospel is that God is on a mission to give us that. He has come to give us a happily thereafter through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the person of Christ. 
Jesus has come to die for our sin on the cross in order to destroy the war of sin that separates us from God. In order to make us live before God. In order to make us fit to live with God. And all who trust in Jesus have now received a new life of joy, a new life of peace with God forever through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you may sit here and say, well, I'm a Christian and I, and I don't feel very peaceful, I don't feel very joyful, right? And there's a reason for that. Because we live, when we think of the kingdom of God breaking in through Jesus, it is both a now and not yet. It is a now in the sense that now we, do, we are plugged into Christ, we do live with him, we are united with him. But there's a component to that which is a not yet. The full blessing of this new life, this happily thereafter we have in Jesus, will only be seen when the Lord Jesus appears for a second time to dwell with us physically forever. So now we live in these two worlds, don't we? We live in a now and a not yet. And this evening we are in Mark, which I just read, Mark 13, verse 24 to 27. It tells us about this not yet. It tells us about Jesus promising all his true followers that he's coming to gather us in, to live with him with glory and power. Now, if you've been with us in Mark, you know that prior to these verses, particularly if you're here this morning, the last two Sundays actually, we have been exploring verses 14 to verse 23. And those, spoke, those verses spoke of the, uh, the, the, the person who appeared before Jesus appears, and that is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a man of sin, the abomination of desolation. This man of lawlessness who will bring great suffering and great spiritual deception in the world. We looked at that when we explored verse 14 to verse 23 in three sermons. Now Jesus, in this section, verse 24 to 27, wants to reveal to us what will happen after the great tribulation. And what will happen is that Jesus will come in glory and power to gather his people. The key verse is verse 27, isn't it? And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. These verses, verse 24 to 27, tells us two important truths I just want to share with you today. The first truth is this. Jesus is coming back as God among us. Jesus is coming back as God among us. Jesus in these verses, and these verses tells us that the great tribulation will be followed by his bodily and visible appearance as the Son of Man. Let's just read that again. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. There are a couple of things I just want us to note in this passage. First of all, before Jesus appears, the universe will come to a standstill. We are told there will be great turbulence in creation. Now, it's not clear when we look at verse, verse 20, 20, 24 and 25 whether Jesus here is just using poetic language 
or whether it's something describing what will actually happen. What is important for us to note is that what is being communicated by the Lord Jesus Christ here is that the universe as we know it will no longer function as it should. Look at that again. The sun will be darkened. In Revelation chapter, we actually told in Revelation chapter 6 that it will be like sackcloth, isn't it? Uh, it will be completely dark. The moon will not give its light. It will no longer function as we have come become used to. And verse 25 says the stars will be falling from the heavens. We could interpret the stars whether it's angels or not or just stars. I take this to mean actually stars, just the stars. Because the point that Jesus is making here is that creation will no longer function as it should. If you like, what we are being presented with here is almost like Time will stop. The entire universe will stop as it waits for Jesus to arrive. Now, we are living in a time now when people in the West are worshipping the earth. I was quite shocked, actually, <laughs> this past week when I was picking up a book from the library that we borrowed. And that was a good book about prayer, I guess, to give thanks to God. But it turns out the entire book for children is just about thank you, earth, Thank you, planet. It's not just giving thanks to, the, to Mother Earth, as it's called, quote-unquote, right? It is pantheistic. It is thanking creation rather than God. There's no thanks to God in this children's book. I was quite shocked by it. That is the world we are living in, isn't it? We are living in a world in which people can gather in Trafalgar Square, with Extinction Rebellion we're doing, and actually just have a day of worshipping with guitars the earth. On national television, broadcast live and everything, the worship of the earth. This is London. This is not somewhere where I grew up in Lake Mueru somewhere. This is London here. People have now turned now, you see, to worship the planet. And they call it Mother Earth, Mother Nature, and so forth. Gaia, all these phrases that are used to worship the planet. But Jesus says here, look, the earth and the universe ultimately answer to God. And one day, the cosmos will publicly acknowledge Jesus when he makes his appearance. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. All of creation will acknowledge that the grand entrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing we see. When Jesus appears, the universe comes to a standstill. Secondly, the turmoil in creation, notice that, will be followed by a shaking of heavenly powers. Look at verse 25. We are told, and the powers, the second sentence, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. What does he mean by the powers in the heavens will be shaken? I think this most likely refers to spiritual powers in heavenly places. As you know, the Bible teaches us that God has created many spiritual beings. Not just physical beings, but also spiritual beings. And some of these powerful spiritual beings have rebelled against the rule of God. The Bible tells us that. And among these spiritual beings is the devil. Principalities, authorities, and cosmic powers who live in the heavenly places and preside over the present darkness in the world. 
And it is these dark powers, I believe, that Jesus says will be shaken before he appears. They will be bound and locked up before Jesus appears. You see, life on earth is full of suffering, isn't it? And spiritual chaos. And we tend to deal with our suffering in our lives and all that's going in the world at a very human level. We tend to just see, well, you know, somebody's upset me, though it might be my neighbor. My neighbor, perhaps, is smoking too much, needs to slow down. We tend to think that, don't we? Or somebody is upsetting us at work, we tend to see, well, you know, the agenda of the world is there. But we, we forget, don't we, that behind, you remember what I said this morning? Behind every teaching is a spirit. Well, the same is true for the world. Behind every ideology is a spirit. And the, and, and the Bible tells us that the world system is opposed to God. And it is presided over satanic powers. Principality powers, cosmic powers. We are engaged. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against such powers in the heavenly places. So we are being reminded here that before even Jesus sets foot on this planet, he must bind, so to speak, he must chain completely, arrest the, 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 the cosmic powers before he enters the planet and takes full possession of it. He's already defeated them, of course, on the cross. But this is sort of mopping up job, isn't it? Before he takes full reins of the world as we know it. In this passage we are being told, isn't it? That, that, that the darkness of satanic powers will one day give way to the Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All human rebellion will come to a crushing stop and the rule of demons and principalities will be shaken and sent packing. That's the second thing we see here. The third thing we see here is that Jesus tells us that after the shaking of the heavenly powers, our Lord Jesus, the King of glory, God dressed in human flesh, will descend in glory and power. Look at verse 26. And then they, that is the world in general, will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. As we have noted before, notice there, first of all, the title Jesus gives himself, the Son of Man. As we have said before, that title is based on Daniel 7, verse 14. It communicates Jesus as effectively God among us, and Jesus, as, as, as God among us, Jesus is being fully God as fully man. Now, we have looked at that passage a number of times, and I don't need to detain you by looking at it. But the title of Son of Man isn't just mean Jesus is fully human. It actually communicates that Jesus is fully God as well. That's why it's communicating. So when Jesus says to himself here, when Jesus says here that, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, what Jesus is telling us here is that what we will see is Jesus coming in his full divinity as well as being fully human. Jesus will come in the clouds. Why? Why is Jesus coming in through the clouds? It's not just that cosmos, no. The clouds in the scripture symbolizes the presence of God. You remember we looked at that in Mark chapter 9, didn't we? When Jesus appears on the mountain of transfiguration, what happens? The crowd comes 
And we see the crowd again in Exodus. Jesus here is saying he will come in clouds. Why? He will come in the presence of God. He will come as one who is fully God. He will come with glory, with honor, and with power. The world, for the first time, will see Jesus as he fully is. They will see that this is God incarnate. This is God dressed in the human rags of the flesh. God, our creator, robed in flesh. You see, there is, there is a, there's woven within all human beings, you see, a desire for glory, isn't there? We all desire to be the center of the universe. Wives desire to be the center of their universe, the home. <laughs> That's the husband does as well. We as citizens desire to be the center of the country. <laughs> we all desire to be the center of whatever universe we inhabit. We want the world to revolve around us. We long for power. We long for glory, don't we? I've made this point before. This longing for glory is not evil in of itself. It has actually been hardwired in us by God. You see, because God created us, you see, with a desire to be significant, to be honored, to be praised, and to be exalted. But we were meant to find these things not in ourselves, but in being in perfect relationship with God. We were created to be glorified in God. But as I said at the beginning, we rebelled against God. So all of us now are searching for glory in many things. We're trying to find significance in many things. Trying to plug ourselves in this issue, in that issue, in this career, that career. We are searching for lost glory in family in good health, in hobbies, in education. Others are searching for it in therapy, in mindfulness. Others are searching for lost glory in the false Jesuses we talked about this morning. As a civilization, everything we do from pursuing economic growth, building the tallest buildings, technology, politics, social media, all of it is about one thing. It's about humanity trying to recover the lost glory we lost in Eden. We are looking for a better version of ourselves. As I've said in the past, we, we want to be us again. We want to be great again. To be first in the cosmos. And, and the amazing thing is that when we come to this scripture and we read that verse in verse 26. And then they will see the son of man. The one who is fully God and fully man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. They will see this Jesus, the entire universe, stopping for him. We immediately realizing, realize here that Jesus is saying this longing in us, this longing to be at the center of the universe, will be finally fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the God-man, you see. And he will take our humanity and place it at the center of the universe. Quite literally. The universe will stop for this man, this son of Mary, this man who is God. I looked at this scripture and I thought, Lord, I can't put this into words. How do I communicate this to my brothers and sisters just to understand the gravity, the scale of what we are talking about here? All that we have longed for as human beings is answered here in this man, Christ. It is hard to communicate it. It is hard to understand that the second coming of Jesus will be your second coming if you are in Christ. 
you are not what you, you are created to be. You are not. And it's only at that point when you see who Jesus is, when you see him face to face, when you are transformed to be like him, that is when you will be who you are meant to be. He will bring you in, as we shall see in a moment, bring you in at the center of the universe. Because this is at the heart of all of this, isn't it? Jesus is coming back as one of us. This is the second coming of one who is God and one who is man. That we should not mistake that. This is the coming back of the perfect man, the second Adam, to place humanity at the center of the universe. The stopping of the cosmos is symbolic. It's symbolic that now man, because of Jesus the God-man, shares in the glory of God, shares in the power of God as it were. Without us, of course, becoming God at all. But in Christ, through our union with him, we are now brought to the center. Jesus is saying when he returns, humanity will finally find what it has been searching for. Everything will stop for Mary's baby, who is our God. And the wonderful news is that if you are a true follower of Jesus, you are already part of this wonderful future. You will share in this glory forever because you already share it now. In the now, but you share it more fully in the not yet. Because Jesus is not only coming back as God among us, he's coming back as God with us. And that's the second truth I just want to share and the second and final truth we see in this passage. The first truth is that Jesus is coming back as God among us. The second, the first truth, that was the first truth. The second truth is that Jesus is coming back as God with us. As God with us. The purpose of the second coming as presented in Mark 13. By the way, each passage of the Bible, you need to take... Look, you've looked at some of these passages on the end times from different angles. But what you need to realize is that the word of God is like a diamond. And each passage of the Bible has something unique to tell us about the second coming. There is something that Mark tells us and contributes which other passages don't. And the interesting thing is that as we come to Mark, one of the important points that Mark is contributing to us, which other passages do also contribute, but in a different way, is that the coming of Jesus is about God coming to dwell with his people forever. Notice here there is nothing about fire from heaven and, 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 and punishing the wicked. It will happen. But that's not Mark's focus. The focus of Mark here is that God is coming to dwell with you in Christ forever. Look at verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Again, there are four things I just want to flag up for you quickly. First of all, the angels will be dispatched to gather all the people of God and bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That tells us something about who angels are, the fact that they are ministering spirit sent to minister to the elect, 
But most importantly, it is telling us that the one they are gathering things to, these believers, the things to, the elect, right? <laughs> to put it right, is God. Jesus is God. How do I know that? Because in the Old Testament, the people of God were promised to be gathered to Yahweh. We read that in Isaiah 43, for example, Ezekiel 34, and Zechariah chapter 2. But here we see the saints are not being gathered to Jerusalem, as some people would have us believe. They don't even, even say they are being gathered to God. They are being gathered to Jesus. Notice the elect are called his elect. It is Jesus who chose them before the foundation of the world. They are being gathered to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the God of Israel who has come to gather his true children to himself. That's the first thing. The second thing you notice here, notice who's being gathered. Look at verse 27. And you send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. From the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Of heaven. The passage here is reminding us that Jesus has come to gather those people he chose from the foundation of the world. And he's first of all gathering them across the earth, notice that, from the ends of the earth, that means everybody who's alive at the time, but notice where it goes, isn't that strange? To the ends of heaven. Why? Because this gathering also includes those who have gone before us, those who are currently in heaven. This verse is reminding us those who are dead will be raised to life and be gathered with Jesus, as Paul reminds us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. It says this, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 to 18 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. In fact, Matthew's version of the Oliver Discourse talks about the trumpet, doesn't it? With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are at the hands of the heaven, they will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are in the ends of the earth, the gospel has now reached the ends of the earth. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The point I'm trying to make here is that as Jesus descends from heaven, those dead who are, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we'll, join, we'll be caught up with them to welcome Jesus as it were. And this gathering, this great gathering will be the gathering of saints in all human history. Oh, there will be Abraham there. There will be Moses. There will be Spurgeon. There will be all these great saints. Robert Murray McShane. I'm looking forward to seeing them. All of these guys will be there. And we will join in with them to welcome the Lord Jesus. Loved ones. Your great grand. If, if she was converted. She will be there. Right? Is it for those who will be alive though? The gathering of the elect will mean for us living behind the great tribulation. We will now share in the glory and power of Jesus. Oh, it will be amazing, won't we? We live in a divided world, a world divided by race, by tribe, nationality, income, and other differences. Yes, even the churches are divided. There is no true unity in our churches. We still only share with those who look like us. 
They say in the USA, at 10 o'clock in the morning in the USA, it is the most divisive time because you have white churches all white and your black churches all getting up somewhere else. So even for the church of God now, we are still divided in so many ways. The world longs for unity and diversity. The church also longs for unity and diversity. But one of, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, one day, the church of God will live in perfect community of redeemed sinners from all nations. All our differences will not matter. There is a time which is coming when Brexiteers who trust in Christ will sit with Remainers or Remoners who trust in Christ. And you won't call them Remoners. You just delight that they are children of God and you sit with them with Abraham at the table. Calvinists will sit side by side with truly, truly converted Armenians. Not just Armenians. <laughs> truly converted Armenians, if there is such a thing. We will all be united. Wondering. Thirdly, notice here, let us underline again that the gathering of the elect will also will happen after the great tribulation and the shaking of the cosmos. It's important we understand that. Because for many of us, this is the most controversial observation from this passage. The gathering in this passage doesn't happen before the great tribulation. It happens after the great tribulation. We are encouraged to be Berean, aren't we? But verse 24 does tell us if we're being Berean. But in those days, when? After that tribulation, which Matthew calls the great tribulation. And then verse 20, what will happen? The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. These are things we read about in the bowls of wrath, in the trumpets, in the breaking of the sixth seal, for example. That's what that's talking about, verse 24 to 25, in particular Revelation 6, if you want to follow that up in your own time. After all of that breaking of the seals, all of that bowls of wrath, after all of the trumpets, then we come to verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. What we have here again is a clear statement from Jesus and followers of Jesus will not escape the great tribulation. We will be here on earth. And many will die at the hands of Antichrist and experience some element of divine shaking of the cosmos. But the Lord will not lose anyone he has saved. It will be his power to preserve the elect through great suffering. You see, the idea that of any pre, mid, or post-tribulation rapture, escape, this escape from this world, is therefore simply not consistent with this passage in Mark. It's not consistent with any plain reading of scripture. You would have to do theological gymnastics to get there. And beloved, I want to encourage you, as hard as this truth is, it is a good thing. Why do I say that? Because the secular world often criticizes followers of Jesus of having a form of escapism religion. They think Christianity is about escaping suffering. They think Christianity is about the Dr. Phil Jesus, as I said this morning. The prosperity Jesus. The make me feel good Jesus. But we see that Christianity is none of that. 
What Jesus teaches us in Mark is none of that. We see here that the real Jesus is not offering you a theology of escape. No, he's offering you a theology of patient endurance of the saints. And we read that, don't we, in Revelation 7, verse 9 to verse 17. An important passage is so wonderful. I just want to read it in all its entirety. Revelation 7, verse 9 to verse 17. It says this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around, the angels again, there they've gathered them. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the angels addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come from? That's the question he wants to know. I, I, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones. Listen to me carefully. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the people God has kept through that terrible time. And verse 15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Oh, they shall anger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I can talk a lot about Revelation at this point. I don't want to, but that verse is going to come back again at the end of Revelation. Because Revelation actually works in three cycles. It's just saying the same thing in three cycles. And that's going to come back again later. But notice that Revelation 7 comes after Revelation 6. And Revelation 6, we've already had the sixth seal where the earth has been darkened. Where the passages we've been talking about in Mark are repeated in Revelation effectively. You see, the point I'm making is that Revelation 7 is reminding us that we will suffer before Jesus comes. But there will be an end to our suffering. Jesus will one day wipe away our every tear. You know, it is hard to imagine a world without suffering. Can you imagine? Since we were born, all we have known is tears. All we have known is disappointment. But Jesus is coming to make all things new. And that brings me to the final thing we need to notice there in, verse, in that verse 27. Notice what is not mentioned in this passage. These things are not mentioned not because these things will not happen, because they are not the focus here. As I said, there's no mention here of non-believers being judged and punished. We know that will happen, but this passage is not focused on that. There is no mention here of the millennium. 
I think it is clear there will be a millennium which will be followed by the battle of Mageddon, but it's not mentioned here. These things are not mentioned here not because they are not relevant to the body of Scripture as a whole. They are not mentioned here because Jesus doesn't want to take away the full force of his main point. It is a point that Mark emphasizes more than any other, I think, record of the end time. And it is this, one day God will dwell with us. Jesus is coming back to dwell with the elect. He is coming back to dwell with us, to gather his people to himself. Mark's whole purpose of writing this is to encourage us to persevere. Jesus is saying history has an end point, a telos, a goal. And the goal is for God to dwell with us again. As that Andrew Peterson song says, we'll ask the question, doesn't it? Will our God again dwell with us? And we respond, he will. He will dwell with us. He is coming back to dwell with us to make us great again in Jesus. For those who are not true followers of Jesus, of course, there will be no great gathering. There will only be a great separation. They will be cast in the lake of fire. But for those who know Jesus, they will indeed be happily thereafter. No more suffering. We will be clothed with the glory and wonder of Jesus. We will once again live with our God in love and perfect community with each other. And this is what we yearn for, and we will get it in Christ. And you know, Mark has recorded these words for us. Why? Because he's writing to followers of Jesus in Rome, beloved. They are already living as if it's a great tribulation. They are suffering terribly at the hands of Nero. They are being set up as human torches. They are being torn by wild beasts. Many of them have lost their businesses. Marriages, families have become strained. They are being put to death for Jesus. They already know something about the patient endurance of the saints. They are not debating the rapture. They know they are suffering for Christ now. But Mark says to them, keep enduring. Keep your focus. You already have the happily thereafter. And you will experience it when Jesus dawns in glory. You will be gathered to him. And beloved, this is true for us here at Grace Baptist Church, Bexley. We need these words of encouragement, don't we? Because like all God's people, we always face challenges because this world is no longer our home. And as a church, corporately, first of all, there will be times, and we do experience times, isn't it, when we feel small, when we feel we're struggling, when we feel we're broken, when we feel frail as a church, when we're discouraged in the work of ministry, in the work of evangelism. Or we're even discouraged to come to church. We feel that, don't we? There will be times of struggles for all God's churches in this world. And we know something of that. There will always be something wrong with any group of people. But no matter what happens, what Jesus is saying here, focus on the big picture as you do church. Focus on the fact that you are the elect of God. Focus on the fact that you are headed for that appointment with Jesus. To see him face to face. He's saying your future is always going to be great. Because you have an appointment with Jesus. And I think that comfort isn't just for us as, as a church. 
It is also there, Mark wants to put this out there, for individual believers. This is your comfort at work. This is your comfort at home. This is your comfort living in a deeply secular culture. Oh, beloved, some of you face so much uncertainty for the future. You, you have uncertainty regarding your health. You don't know what your health is going to be like a year from now. Some of you have uncertainties regarding your job. How long are you going to have that job? Your family life is unsure. Is your husband behaving as he should? Is your wife supposed to be? You, you are worried perhaps about the future of your marriage. Some of you have uncertainties about the education. I'm, I'm uncertain about what sort of education will my daughter have growing in this country. And all that the government is throwing at us. But Jesus is saying, look, do not be alarmed about your future. Because no matter what happens, your future is already written. How does your future look like? Jesus says it's a great future. Jesus knows that between now and when you see him face to face, there will be difficulties. But he's encouraging us here to focus on the big picture. Focus on the truth that he's coming back in glory for you. He's coming back to give you a happily thereafter that he has already purchased on the cross. Of course, before he comes, there will be many trials in your walk. But Jesus has promised here. Listen, Jesus hasn't promised just to give you a great future. Jesus has said you will endure to see your great future. Because in prayer verses, Jesus raises this possibility of the Antichrist deceiving even the elect. But all of that is taken away with because when we come to verse 27, oh, we see the angels. They are out there gathering the elect bringing them in. No weapon formed against them, even by the Antichrist as prospered. And therefore, if you are in Christ, you can be assured, no matter what is going on, well, you will endure to the end. So focus on the future. Keep your focus on being gathered to Jesus. Keep your focus on that in the middle of whatever suffering you're enduring. Focus on this. One day, the world of sin will be normal. One day, you stay with the Jesus you love for all eternity. It will be an awesome day. One day, you will see him face to face. You will be welcomed at his feet. You will be gathered to him. Let this truth drive everything you do. Let this truth warm your hearts. Let it motivate you to make Jesus known. We will live with him in glory. Forever. Jesus is God among us and is God coming to be with us forever.